thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 212, The Massacre of Nanjing. Shanghai had fallen. On November 8th, Chiang Kai-shek sent out orders for his remaining troops to abandon the port city. This order, seemingly out of nowhere, as far as the Chinese citizens were concerned, threw them into a quandary. Did they stay and hope things would calm down, now that the fighting was over, or did they follow their fellow countrymen in uniform and thus support Chiang's nationalist government? They had little time to decide. Meanwhile, the nationalist leader, who knew how important propaganda was, i.e. the morale of the Chinese people, told himself and his staff that China's new aim was to defeat the enemy's plans of a rapid decision in a quick war, by carrying out a war of attrition and wearing out the enemy. But, of course, the military was told before the general populace. Chiang needed as many of his half-million troops, minus those 187,000 dead or seriously wounded, to get on the roads first. After all, it was bad enough that 30,000 of his 90,000 officers, who had been trained at great expense by his German advisors, were now dead. With things thus decided, it was time for the military leadership to pull out as well. So the command structure was told to make for Wuhan, some 527 miles or 848 kilometers west by southwest of Shanghai. Chang did not imagine Tokyo would be willing or able to push so far inland. And having the military command at Wuhan, it could act as a shield for the nationalist government's new home at Chongqing, another 545 miles or 877 kilometers to the west. Chiang Kai-shek had considered leaving the government at Nanjing, but as it was only 200 miles or 321 kilometers northwest of Shanghai, it could not be risked. And the very thing China took pride in, its railway, directly connected the conquered Shanghai with Nanjing. Chiang knew that the military retreat was bad enough, but moving the government's capital might spell its collapse. But it had to be so. What parts of the government were at Nanjing were also ordered to make for Chongqing. The Western powers were most unhappy at these turn of events, but as they had done nothing, their surprise was focused on what they had lost. A British diplomat in Wuhan, where the Nationalist military headquarters was heading, wrote home, In no case have I heard a sharp criticism of England's attitude. Regret is nevertheless expressed that we should not be in a position to defend our vital political and economic interests in the Far East, which the Chinese are convinced will be entirely obliterated once Japan gains control over China. This same diplomat could not help but write a little later, had there been a powerful British fleet in the Far East waters in July, Japan would have never dared to ride roughshod over our established rights in Shanghai for the purpose of attacking and destroying the Chinese government. Which may or may not have been true, but it was no more than wishful thinking. Europe was currently caught up in the Spanish Civil War, and the democracies there were of only marginally superior assistance to Republican Spain. 
To be sure, London and Paris had their own concerns. Exactly one year before Chang's retreat, Germany and Japan had signed the Anti-Comintern Pact, which stated that if either one of them was attacked by the USSR, the two countries would consult as to harmonize their future actions for self-defense. True, this threat was specifically pointed at Stalin's Soviet Russia, but it put the rest of Europe on notice. And during the nationalist retreat, Italy joined the pact. Also, just days before the treaty between Germany and Japan back in 1936, Mussolini had announced to the world of the Rome-Berlin axis, which he expected, Europe and probably the rest of the world would evolve. Again, Europe was on notice. Getting back to Chiang Kai-shek, he knew the only chance China had of winning this war was by an all-out national effort. The people had to come together, work hard, and sacrifice for the good of the country. This would prove to be challenging to the vast majority of China in the form of its farmers, whose lives had changed little over the centuries. But as they were to find out in the coming months and years, the war would be coming to them. Indeed, the attack on Shanghai was not the only clash between Chinese forces and the enemy. Back in August, around the same time the Battle of Shanghai stumbled into existence, General Haidike Tojo, the chief of staff of the Kwangtung Army, launched and personally led units of the 1st Independent Mixed Brigade in Operation Chahar. Chahar was a province in China named after the Chahar Mongolians. Tojo's goal was to increase Japanese penetration and control into inner Mongolia border regions with Manchukuo. The problem for Chiang Kai-shek was he did not directly control this area and those around it. Still, he sent reinforcements north, but by the time the units reached their destination, the fighting was over. The Japanese were in control of more territory and more of China's rail lines. Tojo had attacked on August 8th, but was held up for three days by determined, though under-equipped, Chinese soldiers and difficult terrain. A second attack commenced on August 11th, this time supported by tanks and aircraft. The terrain remained challenging, but the Chinese had no answer for the superior war technology. This occurred just after the Battle of Baiping and Tianjin near the coast, covered previously. Then, in September, Tojo sent the Japanese troops further inland, to conquer the province of Shanxi. Within Shanxi, two major cities held valuables, one badly needed by the Japanese, the other the Chinese. Tiayuan held an arsenal of modern weapons Chang would need to defeat the Japanese, though the area was under the local control of Yan Jihan. He was supposed to be helping the nationalists defeat not only the Japanese, but also the communists, who also controlled territory nearby. The other was the major city of Datong, which had vast coal mines, badly needed by resource-poor Japan. The Chinese troops here had no more of a chance than did their counterparts at Chahar. However, local communist guerrillas were able to inflict 3,000 casualties on the invaders, which they touted to the skies. 
as the Japanese had been victorious to this point, their arrogance caused them to skip the prudent step of having scouts placed in front of their columns. Thus, units from the Communist 8th Army, under the Long March veteran Lin Biao, were able to catch the Japanese walking through a narrow valley pass northeast of Shangzi on their way to their first target. There, the Chinese poured bullets into the enemy while dropping grenades among their ranks. Some 3,000 enemy troops were killed. The communists lost 400 men before making good their escape. Of course, this did not change the inevitable. The Japanese went on to take Tiayun, some 350 kilometers northwest of Shanghai, and then Datong, another 250 kilometers further north. But between the distances and the Chinese defense, this victory took time, which meant it ended roughly the same time that Chiang called for the retreat from Shanghai. This loss convinced the Chinese communist leader Mao Zedong that China's only chance at winning was to bleed the Japanese to death, and that would only happen through guerrilla tactics. This would simultaneously weaken Japanese morale while strengthening that of China's peasants. With such an enthused army of millions, anything was possible. Hello, Ray here. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. Try books like You Are a Badass at Making Money, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Crypto Assets, The Innovative Investor's Guide to Bitcoin, and beyond. Or for the healthier you, The Sleep Revolution, or The Power of Habit. And this is where Audible.com comes in. Audible helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off, whether it's on your phone, through your car, from your tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo. You can get through tons of books, hands and eyes free, while doing almost anything. Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook in our store, regardless of price and unused credits roll over to the next month. Didn't like your audiobook? You can exchange it, no questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash worldwar or text worldwar to 500-500. That's 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. Now, I've been an Audible member for years, and my collection of World War II books has made many a commute or trip enjoyable and seem shorter. Some of my World War II favorites are the classic The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, A History of Nazi Germany by William Shire, An Army at Dawn, The War in North Africa, 42-43, The Liberation Trilogy, Volume 1, by Rick Atkinson, or D-Day, The Battle for Normandy, by Antony Beaver. And there are so many more. The question is, which one will you choose as your free audiobook for trying Audible? Just go to audible.com slash worldwar or text worldwar to 500-500 to get started. That's 
A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash W-O-R-L-D-W-A-R. Or again, you can text World War to 500-500 to get started. After the fall of Shanxi and its capital, Tiayun, the Imperial General Headquarters back in Tokyo, was activated. This allowed Emperor Hirohito to meet regularly with his military chiefs and ministers. It was decided to keep calling the conflict with China an incident, as this terminology would not risk receiving certain imports from the United States. However, that the regular meetings were now taking place showed that this clash with China was something much more than an incident, as this degree of fighting would require coordination of the very highest levels. And yet, now that Shanghai was occupied, this incident could no longer be called the North China Incident, so it was generalized to the China Incident. This seems to have pacified the Western powers, as they were not really interested in getting involved. Not that Madame Chang, the Generalissimo's wife, would make it easy for anyone to forget what was really happening. She told the United States public through a radio address, the Chinese have labored for years under the stigma of being cowards, but now the world will see their best. We will try to fight until we win or we are really beaten to our broken knees, even if our good earth, with all of its history and its cares, is steeped with blood and swept by fire and destroyed. She also put pay to the enemy. Japan is acting on a preconceived plan to conquer China. Curiously, no other nations seem to care. That Japan seems to have secured their spellbound silence, uttering the simple magic formula. This is not a war, but merely an incident. And this incident continued. Some 250 kilometers or 155 miles north of Shanghai, the province of Shandong along the coast, sticking out into the Yellow Sea, was the next to fall. Or rather, its warlord, General Han Fuju, supposedly loyal to Chang, abandoned his post when the Japanese moved south and crossed the Yellow River in early January 1938. The month previous, Han, a hard but practical man, had been trying to negotiate with the Japanese in order to keep his semi-autonomous empire. But the secret talks came to nothing. Han would end up being arrested on Chang's orders and executed. With the war going badly, certainly in the north, China's government had various factories broken down and sent piece by piece to Chongqing. Some 25,000 skilled workers followed. Fortunately, the material and humans were able to use the Yangtze River to make the trip. The military stopped at Wuhan, and the rest went further upriver to Chongqing. Of course, there was a third destination, but for a much smaller percentage of those fleeing, and that was Yan'an, the communist headquarters, some 530 miles or 852 kilometers due west of Shandong. By the end of 1937, the major cities of North China were under Japanese control. Of course, the countryside was a different matter. There, 
mostly communist guerrilla fighters, waited to harass and kill. Still, this meant that central China was open to invasion, but Chang hoped that Wuhan's distance would protect it, at least for the foreseeable future. With the opening of 1938, between 80 and 100 million Chinese people were on the move, struggling to find a place to settle down for the first winter of this war. Ironically, in time, many would return home, though those areas were now controlled by the Japanese. But the thinking, or rationale, was Japan wanted things to return to normal, to some degree. Hence, a modicum of stability would exist. Time would tell. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As December 1937 opened up, Chang and Madam Chang were in Nanjing, celebrating their 10th anniversary. Well, it would be more accurate to say that they were going through the motions. Their hearts were quiet with sadness, as was the capital, Nanjing. After all, the city had been bombed repeatedly since mid-August. By December, it was as close to a ghost town as any major city could be. Indeed, a Reuters report from late November reported the gloomy scene. In a steady downpour, the evacuation of the Chinese government was almost completed today. Offices and factories were now being stripped of all valuable equipment. If the city is taken, it will only be an empty shell. Ironically, Tokyo had no intention of capturing Nanjing at first. Before Shanghai, the fighting had been mostly limited to the north, and there Tokyo wanted to focus on consolidating its gains. It was Chiang Kai-shek who stood defiantly in his port city that drew intense Japanese attention. And now the nationalists had to be dealt with. So the Shanghai Expeditionary Force under General Matsui and the 10th Army that had landed further south, which brought about the end of the defense of Shanghai, were to be brought together to form the Central China Area Army, or CCAA. The goal of the CCAA, which was conceived as hastily as the entity itself, was to take Nanjing, because it had to do something. 
Just before Shanghai fell, the Japanese were content with taking this massive port city. But now that Chiang Kai-shek kept sending out broadcasts and issuing statements in the papers that the nationalists would continue to resist, Tokyo knew that it had to kill the Chinese government if Shanghai was ever going to be left in peace and in their hands. General Matsui Iwane himself spelled out the consequences of continued defiance. Unless the Nanking government reconsiders its attitude and ceases its resistance, Japanese troops will continue to advance to Nanking, Hankou, and even Chongqing, China's new capital. As for Nanjing itself, the first city on that list, the locals had pretty much evacuated in mid-fall. This was good enough for most foreigners, who then left themselves. But a few would remain behind and attempt to emulate Father Jacquinot's safety zone for the locals. But as the foreigners would find out, the Japanese would not agree to a safe haven, as they suspected spies and saboteurs would be hiding inside. Chiang Kai-shek flew out of Nanjing on December 7th, traveling to a few cities to see things for himself. He eventually arrived at Wuhan, his military's new headquarters, by the middle of the month. By then, he had reflected on his many crises namely how to help the refugees and how to reconstruct his military to meet the expanding threat of the Japanese. Meanwhile, General Tong Shenzi and the forces he led were waiting for the Japanese to arrive in Nanjing. Not that they were expected to hold out. Tong had switched sides a few times over the years, so Chong wasn't expecting much out of him. As well, the troops left behind were far from the best the nationalists had. They were being saved for battles where the Chinese actually had a chance of winning. Instead, Tong had a few Cantonese divisions, some troops from Guangxi, some Hunanese, and the 36th and 88th divisions. But these last two, though formerly crack troops, had been decimated while retreating from Shanghai. Their losses had been replaced by inexperienced men. The safety zone set up by the Chinese and foreigners was located at the university and was expected to hold just under 3,000 people. As many had already fled, this was considered feasible. But by mid-December, the entire campus, inside and outside each building, was occupied by refugees. December 12th witnessed a turning point in the defense of Nanjing. Chang had only been gone for two days, and the Japanese were already around the walls of the city. Fighting had been fierce, but General Tong told his men to fight to the last. But that changed on the 12th. That night, around 8 p.m., Tong left the city and told his men, who had already lost some 70,000 defending the city, to make for the gate along the city's north wall and leave it to the enemy. The men, relieved, fled, but before doing so, set fire to the buildings they considered worthy enough for the enemy to want. So as the troops escaped, the people dealt with the fires. The next day, December 13th, the Japanese, in the form of the CCAA, entered the gutted, hollowed, 
and still smoking, former capital. General Matsui was ill, so his deputy, Prince Asaka, was acting officer in command. Right away, the foreigners within the city, less than 30, and those Chinese who had remained behind, could tell something was different about this occupation. Of the cities that had already been taken, the Japanese had worked strenuously to bring stability and some level of normalcy back, even in Shanghai, after the Chinese troops left. But not here, not in Nanjing. At first, young Chinese men of military age, suspected of removing their uniforms, were bayoneted or shot. This made sense to the Japanese. They were soldiers and now cowards. Hence, no mercy. But the killings spread, and there seemed to be no reason or pattern to it. The young, old, female, anyone who happened to be outdoors when come upon by Japanese troops, suffered at their hands. Indeed, it seemed the very goal of the CCAA to raise Nanjing to the ground, one building and one person at a time. And it only grew worse. Soon the foreigners found locals lying dead in the streets, with their hands tied behind their backs. Some were clearly run through with bayonets. Had these hapless victims been used for practice? There seemed no other explanation. Their sheer numbers contradicted a caught saboteur. Then the foreigners, who were writing all this down, were being told stories of rape. Rape on a massive scale. Thousands each day. And the distance from the city of these stories only grew. The Japanese defended themselves by saying they were hunting for soldiers, spies, and saboteurs. But nothing could explain what was happening and its severity. As for the safety zone, it provided no protection. Japanese troops would force their way in, grab women of various ages, and whisk them away. At first, they took their victims out of earshot, but then became more bold and just removed them from whatever room they were in before the defiling began. The Westerners running the zone did what they could, but only ended up saving a tiny fraction at any one time. Complaints were made to the Japanese officers, but nothing changed. To be sure, the massacre of Nanjing was not thought out beforehand. However, as the fighting at Shanghai had been so intense, the Japanese reservists who had been called up were frustrated at losing so many comrades, and they had fallen for their own propaganda that one, China would fall quickly, and two, they, Japan, were trying to lead Asia, in general, away from Western dominance. That their fellow Asians resisted only angered them more. Within the main six weeks of the massacre, some 30,000 Chinese soldiers, in hiding, were discovered and shot, as were another 20,000, but most of them were not soldiers of Chang, just guilty of not being old men. By the end of December, the ferocity of the Japanese troops began to cool, to be sure the murder and rape continued, but not at such a feverish pitch. The Japanese command even began to post guards in parts of the city, as their thinking altered from punishment to 
working with the locals. The new year brought a new city government, under Japanese control, of course, as the occupiers began to think of all the tomorrows to come. The killings and rapes slowed down even more by the end of January 1938, but the damage was done, and a message had been sent. Tokyo wanted their Chinese cousins to know definitively that the white man was not coming to save them. After all, numerous cities had already fallen and were then occupied. Nanjing had just suffered rape and murder on an unparalleled level, with between some 100,000 and 300,000 being killed, without just cause. As for the rapes, the true numbers could never be known, but tens of thousands has to be the minimum, and most women were attacked more than once. And yet the white men of Washington, London, or Paris had done nothing but lodge protests. Now all eyes, Chinese and Japanese, were on Wuhan, the new nationalist military headquarters. And the fact that Chiang Kai-shek still defied the enemy caused even greater anger in Tokyo. Up to this point, there was no formal declaration of war from Japan. But that was about to change. On January 11, 1938, Prime Minister Kanoye, during an imperial conference in front of the emperor, issued a fundamental policy to deal with the China incident. In reality, it was an ultimatum to Chang, which called for reparations to Japan and the nationalist acknowledgement that North China was under Japanese control. Chang had 72 hours to agree to this. If he did not, the decree stated, then Tokyo would no longer recognize the nationalist government and guaranteed its destruction. Chang let the deadline go by, and so at noon on January 16th, Kanoye declared to the world, Hereafter, the imperial government will not deal with the nationalist government. Informally, it was called the Absolutely No Dealing Declaration. And if that wasn't clear enough to Chang and the world, Tokyo stated that this was stronger even than a declaration of war, which may, in part, explain why the Japanese troops in Nanjing were not ordered to stand down. China's ambassador to Japan was recalled home. At the end of January, Chiang Kai-shek held a military conference at Wuhan. He opened the meeting stating that the top priority was to hold the city of Shuzhou, some 500 kilometers or 310 miles north of Wuhan. Why? Because as there was a direct rail line between Wuhan and the more northern city, if it fell, then the Japanese could be on their doorstep within days, not weeks, not months. This section of railway was a part of a larger line called the Jinpu Line that connected Shuzhou with cities further south and north, cities in the north that the Japanese either already controlled or were well on their way to controlling. Furthermore, this longer line, the Jinpu, crossed another rail line that went from east to west called the Longhai Line. If the Japanese gained control of both lines, there would be no safe place for the nationalists to base their government. And Tokyo had already 
made the Jinpu Line its next major target when spring came.